We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of The Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready with, as you might guess, Josh Hendrickson back from uh, Michigan. See your family. How are they? How are you? How are you? They're doing great, and uh, I'm happy to be done with the long drive back. So the drive to Michigan to here is how far? And I, I ask because there's a brewery up there that I'm very fond of that I might have to go visit. Uh, it's about 700 miles. So well, that's not just awful. That's what uh, 10 hours. Yeah, it takes about 10, 10 and a half hours. Yeah. Okay, that's not terrible. Weather good? Is it uh, as muggy in Michigan as it is here? No, not at all. Um, I actually laugh when my relatives will talk about, oh, it's been really hot here. You know, I'm sorry that it's so hot. And I'm like, it will never be as hot here as a July or August in Mississippi. And then they get kind of that, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if the politically correct term is, but sort of an an Indian summer, right, where it gets very pleasant, like September, October, where it's phenomenal i don't know if that's the right term but uh it depends on the year the weather's kind of weird sometimes you get a nice like cool fall uh where it's kind of warm but sometimes you get an early winter so that's that's the downside of that what i really remember most about that part of the country was i covered um i got sent i was in mobile at the time and this was sorry i needed to put my phone on mute I was in uh, I was in Mobile. I was covering the the New Orleans Saints, and the Saints had a preseason game, so it would have been mid August, and it was in Milwaukee. And they sent me up to do a big Brett Favre story or whatnot. And I flew into um, I flew into uh, Milwaukee, stayed a couple of days, went to see the Cubs at uh, what was then called Miller Park. I guess it's some other corporate name now. And uh, anyway, I drove from Milwaukee to uh, Green Bay, which is gorgeous drive. And I got to Green Bay, and the Packers were practicing. And I think the temperatures were in the upper 60s, and it was, cl- it was clear and, 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 and nice. And I thought, this is heaven, man. This is, I mean, compared to Mobile in middle of August, this is absolute heaven. I didn't want to leave. And I remember landing back in Mobile uh, on that Monday, and got off the plane, and literally the moment I got off the plane, the humidity just whacked you in the head, and and just sweated, you know. And I was like, "Oh my god, this is I don't know how we I don't know how we do this down here." I still, it's the one thing about Mobile, 
and it's humid here. But the one thing about Mobile, New Orleans, all that area that I, I never could adjust to, I never got to where I liked it, was the the humidity, the constantness of it. It beats you down. Maybe that's what living in like Minnesota is like in the winter. It just beats you down. Maybe it's just the opposite of that. Yeah, I think the best thing about summer up there is that every morning and every evening it it's cool. So you're not hot the moment you wake up or the moment you go to bed here, it doesn't really cool down till like the middle of the night. And then by the time everybody's up and moving, it's already hot again. You get like a little brief period in the morning. I think where it's a little cool, but that's it. All right. One more thing before we get to our subjects, uh, you and I are cub fans. Um, what are your thoughts on what the Cubs will do this week? In terms of the trade deadline, what what are you hoping they do? What what, what do you think they should do? Uh, especially in light of dropping the marquee app yesterday, which very by market value, their price was kind of under, but it's basically twenty dollars a month for people who are in market to uh, to be able to stream the Cubs all all games and all the stuff on the marquee channel. So. What do I think they'll do? I I don't think they'll do much of anything, to be honest. Uh, what should they do? I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on this, and I think that I'm the opposite of of you on this point. The biggest question, I guess, is like what to do with Bellinger. Yeah. And I kind of go back and forth on this because on the one hand, this season has sort of been best-case scenario for what you were getting when you signed him. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I'm kind of like, well, is this just going to be the one year that he has where he shows that he's still got it? And in that case, you want to sell high or is he going to start playing consistently? And if he's going to be consistent like this, then you want to keep him. And if you have any sign that maybe he's not going to be as consistent, then I think you want to sell high. Um, but I mean, part of the problem is, is I still kind of think they're two years away from being really good again. And so if you're two years away from being really good again, you've got really hard decisions to make about Bellinger. Or you've got a hard decision to make about Stroman. Uh, they both have kind of the same issue is like with injuries and things like that. And so it's kind of, do you want to capitalize on good seasons and get something in return for them? Or do you think that they can be more consistent or do you know something that would make you think that they can continue to stay with the organization and be successful. Yeah. So, and I'll be quick with this because people, I, I, if you're listening, maybe you care. I don't know. I, I don't hold it against them. If they trade Marcus Stroman, he's 34 years old, had a good year. Recently, his splits aren't so hot. I like him. He's a dynamic personality. I get why fans love him. I understand the emotion of it. And when he's on, he's a hell of a pitcher, but I get it. If they move on from Stroman, I, I, even even if they win this week, even if they go six and zero this week and still deal him at the deadline, okay. I don't like it, but I get it. Um, they're not going to trade Kyle Hendricks. That's come out today. They're not going to trade Jan Gomes. They they have favorable deals with them. They'll keep them. Uh, I don't really care what they do with Drew Smiley. I like Drew Smiley. I think he's fun, but he's not a difference maker in a playoff series. Bellinger. So you bring in a guy on a one-year deal, $17 million. It was a, a, a risk for both sides. It was a, a pillow deal, and it worked out. 
so far for both both sides. I think the Cubs have given Bellinger the 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 runway to get better, and Bellinger has given the Cubs a really good, impactful player. His agent, Scott Boris, he's 28 years old. He's a former MVP. He's kind of playing not like an MVP level, but an all-star level baseball. I have no doubt that a handful of teams will be interested in giving him a monster deal. There will also be teams that will be cautious because of his um, his injury past and the fact that he, he, he probably has already played his very best baseball. But from a standpoint of a fan, if you're the Cubs and you let him walk, or you trade him for some prospects here in a couple of weeks and wave the white flag for the last two months of the season, and it would absolutely be waving the white flag. If you trade Bellinger, you're not winning, and you're, you're admitting that you don't think you can win and that maybe you don't care if you win this year. If you do that, you go into the offseason and you're asking fans in market to buy your app for $240 a year, basically. And you damn well better go make a splash. And that obviously Otani would do that. But even in lieu of Otani, if Otani goes somewhere else, so it's, well, who's the next guy? And frankly, the next guy would be Cody Bellinger. And so my attitude is I don't let him leave I, unless I get overwhelmed with an offer. Now, if some team goes, hey, here's our top five prospects. We just need this guy. That's not going to happen. But I don't, I don't let him leave. I keep him in my building. I have that two months. I know Boris says he doesn't negotiate. But look, you know and I know. If you pick up the phone and go, hey, Scott, we really want to talk to you about Cody. Not interrupting Cody's season. Cody's down there on the field getting ready, doing his thing. I won't talk to you. You're not getting ready to play a baseball game. I won't talk. You can get out in front. Yeah, and he'll take your offer and he'll shop it around. But I do think at some point from a fan standpoint with professional sports teams, you have to send a message to your fan base that, hey, we're in. We're committed. We're big market. We're going to act like we're big market. We had to rebuild for a minute. We had to let these guys go. But we're here we go. You're safe buying the app. You're safe buying the tickets. And that's the thing with, with a Bellinger trade if they traded him. And look, they're two under 500 as we record this on a Thursday afternoon. They play the White Sox, I think, uh, one more tonight. And then they go to St. Louis for four. And the Cardinals are awful <laughs> right now. Just awful. And so um, they ought to win some games in St. Louis. They ought to win two or three of the four games in St. Louis, beat the White Sox tonight. You're probably hovering around 500. You're right there in the race. The last two months of your schedule aren't brutal. You go for it, right? So that's what I'm hoping. But I was asked on, on a mailbag question, what do the Cubs have to do to get my fandom back to where it once was? And it's invest. It's put a roster out there that I go, oh, hey, we, we're a playoff contender. We're, we're a World Series contender again. Because I think in a market that big with a fan base that, that is as loyal as the Cub fan base is, people that go to Wrigley, I mean, they you know, all the time, people are just desperate. That last homestand when they had something going, people started packing the place for a, a sub-500 team. That, that has to be rewarded at some point. At some point, you have to act like the Yankees, the Mets, the Dodgers, the Red Sox. You, you've got to... If you're going to play in that market, act like it. There is an interesting economic question here, too. Because as professional sports move more and more towards streaming and sort of individualized experiences more generally, 
It also makes me wonder about the sustainability of strategies where you can kind of just not be any good for a few years and try to build up your farm system and try or, you know, in the NBA, get a bunch of draft picks or what, you know, whatever the case may be, you have all of these teams that strategically, you know, tank. And I wonder to what extent that will be possible when they start, when everything starts to become more individualized. Like if you can just subscribe to a streaming platform that just gives you the Cubs or just gives you the Yankees or just gives you the Braves or whoever, are people, does that change your incentives as a franchise? Because now all of a sudden, if you tank a few years, you're going to lose a substantial amount of revenue because there are going to be a bunch of people who are just kind of casual fans who are like, I'm not paying for this. Why do I want to watch you lose 100 games? Right. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, if you, and if you're uh, like most fans, like this is where media is going. Um, there was actually, it, it, it'll help me segue into something in a minute because it, it was interesting. It reminds me of something you and I have not even pre-discussed. You might have sent, I, I tweeted about it, so you may have seen it. It reminded me of something you had said. I'll get to it in a second. Most fans are fans of one team. You know, like the people that subscribe to my site are Ole Miss fans. They they might know about LSU, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama, whatever. Mostly because they want them to lose. Uh, they 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 just want Ole Miss to win. That's their singular focus. Really, they end up watching other games and keeping up. And so Florida and Tennessee play at two thirty, and they watch because they're SEC fans. But their whole thought process is viewed through an Ole Miss prism for the most part. And hey, thank God for them because it's one of the reasons I'm I'm still in business. But as it pertains to professional sports, if I'm a Cleveland Indians Guardians fan, if I'm a Guardians fan, well, the team that really want to watch the Guardians. Um, obviously, that means I'm going to see the Royals some. I'm going to see the Twins some. But I really just don't. I don't really want to watch those games unless it's playing Cleveland. And so I wonder if that's where it's headed is to some sort of a la carte system where, and then if I get into September. And the Guardians are in a pennant race, right? And and the Guardians are playing the Twins, but I really need the White Sox to lose. And they're playing Kansas City. Can I buy a Kansas City broadcast a la carte that afternoon, that night? I don't know if that's where professional sports wants it to go, but I kind of think the way that people consume media, that might be where things are. The market might dictate that it go in that direction. Yeah, and you already see this a little bit with streaming platforms they give you the flexibility that you didn't really have with a lot of cable providers where it, you know, you kind of had to buy the subscription. I think for MLB in- extra innings, it was different, but for, uh, for the, for a lot of other sports that have shorter seasons, you, you had to pay the same price regardless of whether you uh, subscribed at the beginning or whether you subscribed, you know, halfway through the season or something like that, you know, your cable provider, um, occasionally would provide discounts or something like that. But now that everything is streaming, you know, they're constantly updating pricing on these things like, Oh, you didn't subscribe. Do you want to subscribe for the rest of the season? And so I think it's natural or it's natural that that's going to be more customizable as we go forward. Yeah. And that will absolutely lend an organization to go, Hey, we got to win. I mean, and if we're going to rebuild, we've got to message the rebuild. We've got to market the messaging of the rebuild. Um, the Cubs did that when 20, was it 2011 when they hired Theo Epstein and hired Theo Epstein on a day when the Cardinals were playing a World Series game. And 
he sat down at that table and said, hey, we're going to suck. We are going to suck uh, for a couple of years intentionally. And we're going to hide Joe Madden, right? You know, a year later, we're going to bring him in. Now we're going for it. It was always this. They always stayed ahead of the message so that when they traded Ryan Dempster, for example, you know, I guess that was in 2012, when they traded Ryan Dempster at the deadline, who was an all-star pitcher at the time, you were like, okay, I get it. You told me this was coming. I was braced for it. You know, and one of the guys they got in return in that trade was Kyle Hendricks. He was kind of the, the undercard of that trade. But you were like, okay, well, I'll, I'll read about this Hendricks kid. I'm going to read about this guy and this guy. And and and, and then and they, they, you know, went on and on. And then in, before 15, they signed John Lester to the deal, which was their way of signaling, okay, well, we've got these kids now and here we go. And when they made the Addison Russell trade, I, I remember it was uh, July the 4th of um 14 i think and he made a comment he being epstein that we hope this is the last one of these trades that we do because they sent it's like jason hamill and somebody else to oakland oakland was trying to make a run for it the cubs traded two starting pitchers for this young shortstop that was in the a system and he was like this is the last one of these. And I remember that being kind of an exciting thing when I read that. I'm like, oh, A, I, I've heard about this Russell kid. I've heard he's really good. And B, hey, we're not doing this much more. We're going for it. And then they, sure enough, you know the rest of that story. So if you're going to do it, you've got to be transparent about it. And and, and then it's got to work. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Speaking of um, transparency and media and such, uh, Clay Travis, who runs OutKick and is also a, syndicated I guess radio host um he had a column out on Saturday or Sunday I can't remember which and um it was about media coverage of this like uh whole Hunter Biden thing and he pointed out that he went to law school at uh, George Washington in Washington and at the time he was very much into newspapers, still is, loves to read newspapers. And he was talking about how the Washington Post, back when he was in law school, day after day, had one story after another about the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal. And that the Washington Post, which is known as a left-leaning publication, was clearly going after a Democratic president. I mean, it was a, it was the kind of thing where you thought they're, they're – could potentially take his presidency down um, over this affair with a White House intern. And he was pointing out that a quarter century or so later, they're not covering the Hunter Biden thing, really. Certainly not to the extent that they probably would have a quarter century ago. And he said it's it was a business decision, essentially, that newspapers or what's left of that newspaper and their online subscriptions and such, their audience are, for lack of a better word, fans of the Democratic Party, of the, the, the liberal movement, if you will. And he compared it to sites like mine, rebelgrove.com, and he said, you know, you, he basically said the people that run these team sites, they're not out looking for breaking bad news. I, and, and I thought, at first, I was a little offended. I was like, no, nah, nah, damn it. I'm a journalist. I'll do it. And then I thought, you know, you're right. 
for the most part. I mean, there's been a couple times that I've broken bad news when I had it, like a DUI or whatever. We'll do it because I think that's our job. But if I'm honest, there's been a couple of times when I heard about something scandalous happening around Ole Miss football or whatever, and I was my attitude was, I'll be ready for this, but man, I hope somebody else breaks it. Like, I hope somebody else gets out in front of this and gets it where, okay, I can write about it now and say, hey, as reported by the Clarion Ledger or whatever. And I wondered, is it a survival mode to just not cover it? Or is it is it their politics? And you've always said that it might just be... Can we, you think it might just them being out of touch a little bit. And I wonder if it's some of that, but I also wonder if maybe Clay's onto something. I think Joe Biden might be the greatest example of the difference in media across generations. For most of my entire life growing up, Joe Biden was an absolute joke. I mean, he was literally mocked on television and things like that. His run for president in the 80s was universally considered a disaster. People were laughing at him on like the Sunday news shows. Johnny Carson made fun of him. Yeah. Yeah. And what they were saying is, okay, you know, he's he's plagiarizing speeches. He's making up things about where he finished in, in law school, where he graduated uh, in college and all these different things. And he was a joke. And also he he would say crazy, crazy things all the time. Just completely inappropriate things that people would just kind of look at and go, you know, how does this guy survive in politics? That was the media portrayal of Joe Biden for most of my lifetime. This all changed in 2008. So when he became Obama's running mate the Obama campaign and the Obama administration, I think, did a incredible job. Now, we can debate how much cooperation that they had from the media on this incredible job that they did. But they essentially rewrote a narrative about Joe Biden. He was the old statesman passing the torch to the younger generation. He was, you know, quirky Uncle Joe. You know, sure, he'd say some quirky things sometimes, but... You know, it was never coming from a bad place or, or something like that. It was just, you know, a different generation of person. And part of that narrative is they crafted this narrative of him and his family about him losing uh, his wife and a child, about um, Bo Biden and serving in the military and di- and dying of cancer and they constructed this narrative as like Joe Biden family man. Mm -hmm. And so he was Joe Biden family man, Joe Biden statesman, Joe, you know, quirky uncle Joe, whenever he would say something goofy. And they just did a really good job of crafting this narrative of making him kind of like the likable old guy for the younger generation of Democrats that were coming in to power. And it seems like the people in the media today are completely unaware that this other Joe Biden ever existed. And if he, and, and, and it's shocking to me because you can see all of these things. I mean, if you ever go back, if, if anybody wants to see like 
you know, the worst of Joe Biden, go back and watch like the Clarence Thomas hearings and watch the way that Joe Biden speaks to Clarence Thomas. It's like the most disrespectful tone of voice. Uh, He's incredibly condescending. He keeps giving him this weird grin all the time that's kind of creepy. And, you know, and then he had all of these, he had all of these things early in his career where he would just make outrageous claims that you could easily fact check and they were always fact checked and they were always found to be wrong. <laughs> and, and he just continued on and it's kind of, I mean, in, in, in some uh, sense, you know, it's kind of amazing, you know, to have that much success. And I mean, maybe there are other reasons behind that success, but it just seems like this, he is the the perfect person to characterize the divide that I've talked about before in media, where media used to be very sort of antagonistic, very sort of uh, up by your bootstraps kind of work to now, you know, it, it's a lot of the people who just came from the same sort of elite institutions. They all kind of share this common narrative and, and it's, it's almost as if none of them even know about the old Joe Biden narrative. It's like the only thing that they know is what the Obama administration kind of carefully crafted and and put out there. And I think also too, part of the reason that that narrative took hold with people is I don't think anybody ever thought that Joe Biden was going to run for president again at that time. Like I think they, they kind of, there was a, there was an attitude. I mean, people might forget about this now, but there was kind of like this attitude when Obama got elected, that this is like a new generation of Democrats, right? Like this, it's like the younger Democrats are taking charge. And so Joe Biden being the vice president was kind of, this is the passing of the torch from one generation to the next. And so I don't think that anybody really thought that Biden was ever going to, to run again. And so it makes it easier also to accept the narrative because why are you want to push back on a narrative of the vice president who you know, Obama's very young, you know, barring something horrible happening, right? Biden wasn't going to become president. And so it's just, you know, and so maybe it's that nobody even had the incentive to critique that at the time, but it's almost like that's the only narrative that anybody knows now. And and it's kind of bizarre and shocking. And when he didn't run in 16, it was just assumed that, okay, well, he's going to, you know, head off into the sunset and, yep. and then... They sort of, they being the Democratic Party, they bring him back in 2020 because I think it became obvious to them that he was the only person who polled well against Donald Trump. And it's my opinion, the media, most of the establishment media, the mainstream media wanted Trump out so badly that they clearly didn't kind of, not only did they not cover Joe Biden, they didn't really cover the fact that he was running a non-campaign campaign. And then we know about the laptop story that has now been... I mean, look, the conspiracy theorists are on a winning streak here. I mean, they are... They are I mean, they're, they're, they're winning game after game these days. I mean, they're just... It's, it's like, man, these guys are hot. Um, they, they didn't cover the laptop story, in large part because they didn't want to cover the laptop story. And the people that did cover the laptop, laptop story got censored. Um, I mean, literally, the New York Post Twitter page was shut down for months and months. Um, it's just, it's just a weird, it's a weird environment. And then today, Mitch McConnell speaks at uh, out somewhere in the Capitol, and appears to basically have a stroke while speaking. Stops in mid sentence, couldn't continue. There was this awkwardness of people looking around. 
I don't know how old Mitch McConnell is. My guess is somewhere in his 80s. I'll look it up in a second. And I just can't help. I, I keep coming back to this. I mean, my parents are 80 years old. My dad turns 81 in uh, about three weeks. My mom turns 81 in September. They'll, they're, they're Joe Biden's age. Um, I hope they live for a long, long time. And they're, they're, they're both pretty sharp. Now, my dad physically doesn't move around very well anymore. Um, my mom does. But they're 81 years old. They, they go to bed early. They have to take naps. They would both freely tell you if they were on this podcast right now that they are not equipped to be the president of the United States of America or the speaker of the House or the minority Senate leader. And those are the kind of people, and I'm not picking on parties here. McConnell's a Republican. Trump's going to be, if, if, if Trump were reelected or elected again, I guess would be the right term, he would be 82 years old when his term ended. If Joe Biden is reelected, he will be 86 when his term ends. At some point, don't we need some, I know this is, I don't know, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Do we need age limits on some of this stuff or is that, is that ageist? Because not all, I mean, there are 80, 80 year olds who are sharp as a tack, right? Who could handle the job. Most couldn't. And then I kind of curious your thoughts on just the idea in Washington of just term limits in general. So the term limit thing is the hardest thing I think to navigate because term limits seem obviously good for a lot of reasons. You know, you don't get career politicians if there are term limits. You don't get people who want to use that power uh, for no good. You know, when they have like a limited amount of time, you know, they, they don't necessarily even have time to set up the infrastructure to be all that corrupt. Um, but the issue is, is also the thing about term, term limits is that there's a huge startup cost to being a legislator. And so if you are going to run for Senate and let's say we just say, oh, you can only serve for six years. Well, it's going to take you some time to get up to speed on sort of how the Senate works, what the rules are, how you operate, who the people to talk to are. There's a substantial startup cost, and you might spend the first couple of years there learning all of those things. And then, you know, your term is up and now you leave and your knowledge leaves with you and the next person comes in. And so there is something to be said for people who serving longer terms in the sense that they have a lot of institutional knowledge they can actually help to get things done because they know how things work and they know who to talk to and they know how, how the process is going to go and they're not going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. But at the same time, you look at our political system and it, and it just seems to be dominated by people who are very, very old. Yes. And to some extent, this is voters fault i mean they keep voting for people and so if you're going to keep voting for people you know it's uh you know it's kind of it's kind of your fault like if you're vote if you're voting for mitch mcconnell and joe biden and then complaining that people are too old to be in office well you're kind of contributing to them being in office but on some level it also could be the fault of the parties i mean at what point does the party step in and just say hey we're not going to support you it's, it's time for you to go. I mean, a even better example 
than McConnell is Diane Feinstein. McConnell's 81, by the way. Yeah. He turned 81 in February. Diane Feinstein, who you're about to talk about, is 90 years old. Nancy Pelosi's 83. Well, and Diane Feinstein is she she looks terrible. Like they're wheeling her around in a wheelchair. Uh, like physically, she she looks very old. She looks confused. When there have been stories that have been published about her in the New York Times and the Washington Post, you know, places that are generally more sympathetic to her, essentially, you know, citing people saying that, hey, her staff is doing all of the work because she's just not, she's not up to it anymore. And so at a certain point, voters have to step in. At a certain point, parties have to step in and they got to do something about people being there this long. It's not good for the country for people who are having, who are dealing with all the things that come with aging while they're in the most important deliberative body in human history. That, that just seems, you know, obviously the case that we would want to to limit such people from from taking office. But you see this, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to, to blame term limits because you look at somebody like Fetterman, John Fetterman, it's the same, I mean, it's the same thing. He, the, the man had a stroke. Yeah. And then he continued to run for office because you, uh, my, my understanding is that he had to continue to r- run because if, if he didn't, you know, they can't get a replacement on the ballot or, so, or, or something like that. I don't really know how it works. But but the argument was is like well you know they're kind of stuck with him he has to be like the guy who's running. But he was clearly impaired. I, they, I, he won because he ran against Doctor Oz. I mean that's that's why he won. The, people just didn't want to vote for Doctor Oz, so they literally voted for a guy who had had a stroke. Oh, absolutely. The Republicans have no one to blame but themselves for the midterms. They ran bad candidates. They ran bad candidates. I mean, you know, it's, it's the same reason I always say this about the 2016 election, not to interrupt you, but the 2016 election, when Democrats get so mad about Donald Trump, it's like, well, then don't run a terrible candidate like Hillary Clinton. You ran a historically bad candidate. The Republicans are about to do this again. They're about to repeat it. Every, all of the polling data told you that America doesn't like this person. Whether you think that's sexist or whatever, whatever. They don't like him. Polling data showed that she was just not a popular person. And none of them were running her anyway. It's her turn. Okay, well, middle America doesn't view it that way. Where you just were, Michigan, they didn't view it that way. They didn't give a shit whether it was her turn. They were worried about their pocketbook. And the Democrats ran her anyway. And she got beat. And in the end, it was kind of predictable. Michael Moore predicted it. There were people who predicted it. I didn't. I was taken. I, I believed the polling data. And here we are again. The Republicans are about to do this. I just saw something from Nikki Haley that I want to ask you about because she might actually have a decent idea, although I don't know how you would enforce it. Get to it in a second. The Republicans are about to appear poised to run Donald Trump again, even though all of the polling data shows that most of America has made up their mind about this guy. And they either love him or they hate him, and the percentage that loves him is not enough to win a general election. <laughs> the, the assumption seems to be that 
Joe Biden ran as generic Democrat last time, but this time he'll have to run as Joe Biden and that he'll be just as unpopular as Hillary was. And so maybe, you know, Trump will have a chance. I, I just don't, I, I don't see it. Um, I understand, I understand why Republicans want Trump because he seems like the only person who's like pointing out things that they see. And he seems like the only one who wants to fight with these people. Now we can debate about whether he successfully fights with these people, but he seems to want to fight with these people. And so there's a segment of the Republican Party that's like, yeah, let's let's go with this guy because he's saying the things that you're not supposed to say. He's picking fights with people you're not supposed to pick fights with. And he attacks the media and we don't like the media. And and so it, it's, it's obvious why he's popular. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I I don't see how he's going to win post-2020. If he had just kind of faded into the background after 2020, then I, maybe. But th- there's just too much there, There's just too much stuff. And now you have all of these indictments and, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff. So. You know, Richard Nixon's a great example of this. Had he done what Nixon did in 60, where Nixon believed, and let me make this clear, I'm not saying the election was stolen. Nixon believed that in 1960 there was some funny business that that caused him to lose the election to John F. Kennedy. Nixon was the sitting vice president at the time, still a fairly young guy. He was devastated by the loss. Uh, a few years later, he ran for governor of California, lost, and basically gave up politics for a minute. Regardless, back to 1960, Nixon decided, you know what, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take the high road. I'm going to concede. Um, I'm going to congratulate President-elect Kennedy. I'll be at the inauguration. I'll take my medicine. I'll leave when my term is up on noon on January the 20th, and I'll depart and figure out where I go from there. I'll do it for the betterment of the country. It's in the country's best interest for me not to challenge this. Had Donald Trump, who very clearly believes whether he's right or not, I don't know, believes that that the election was stolen from him. Had he taken the high ground, as difficult as that probably would have been for him, and congratulated President-elect Biden and invited him to the White House, gone to the inauguration, said and done the right things, he probably could run today saying, I told you all this guy was going to wreck the country, and here it is. Remember what we did? Let's make America great again. And it's a message that might resonate with that housewife who voted for him in 16 and against him in 20. But she's made up her mind now. Soccer mom, she's, he's mean. She's not voting for him. And so not enough of him anyway. And so the way that he went out of office, I think, prevents him from having any real shot of getting elected again. I think the biggest problem in our politics, and we've talked about this before, is nihilism, but it's completely different, two different types of nihilism. On the right, the nihilism is we can't win, so who cares? That that's that's rapidly what it's becoming on on the right, is just kind of like they some people don't trust that you know the the elections are valid some people think that even if you that that 
the elections are valid, but you get into power and you just you can't fight the bureaucracy. There, there's just a sort of like nihilism, a practical nihilism. Like no matter what we do, we're not gonna we're not gonna change things. That that's that seems to be kind of a prevailing attitude on the right. On the left, there's this additional nihilism, but it's much more intellectual nihilism. And this, I think, explains the sort of radicalization of the left. You see this in academia, and given the, the degree to which Democrats tend to be college-educated, I, I can't imagine that some of this isn't seeping into uh, you know, their, their political views. You can't escape, if you're taking social science and, and humanities classes, you, you can't escape this approach to social science and humanities, which is essentially deconstructionist. What we do, or, well, not we, I'm not, not going to say we, I don't do this. What they do is they're trying to break everything down to like, what is the core principle here? What is, what is the core thing? What is the, what is the, what is the purpose of this? Where, why does this exist? Why do we, why do we have this? I mean, a prime example is like religion, right? A deconstructionist looks at religion and they say, oh, these are just stories that we tell ourselves because they help us achieve some sort of goal or something like that, right? That this is all just made up myth and, you know, there's nothing here other than stories and those stories maybe are valuable in some way, but they're just stories, right? And, but the deconstructionist attitude is, is it, it essentially takes everything down to its core and then at its core, it inevitably finds that like, oh, this thing, this is just like a social construct. This is just a thing that society's created, and on some level, that might be correct. Like it might be a social construct. But but the mistake that's made is a lot of this deconstructionist stuff treats social construct as being equivalent to arbitrary. So it's it, the social construct doesn't exist because there's some important function that this construct is is performing for society. Instead, it's just arbitrary. It's just a thing that was created and has just been around. And but then you have to explain, well, why is this, why does it exist? Why has it been around? Why why doesn't it go away? And so, if you were somebody who is conservative or somebody who is more right leaning, you would look at the social construct and you would say, okay, well, even if this thing is made up, if it survived for a really long time that suggests that there must be some social value here. It must solve some problem that we don't even realize is a problem anymore because this thing solved it for us. So, you know, we created this thing that helped us to deal with a problem that no longer exists precisely because we have this. But on the left, they look at this and they say, well, no, these social constructs, they're just arbitrary. They're just created by the people who are in power. And so if you think that social constructs are arbitrary... And you, and you think that social constructs are just created by power. Well, then you have this attitude that like nothing matters and everything is made up. And the only way that we change things is through power. And so you've got these two forms of nihilism on the right. You've got this practical nihilism, which is like we, we can't win or we can't change things. And on the left, you have this ideological nihilism that's sort of like, look, everything's just made up. And if we want things to be different, we can make things different. We just need to have power. And if we have power, then we can do those things. And I think that explains a lot of the radicalization in our politics. And I also think that that suggests that we are, we're on a path that is not sustainable and that's not going to have good outcomes unless something changes. 
I remember we talked two weeks ago. I was going to ask you about marriage and childbirth and declining rates in both. Let me ask you this one thing real quick before we completely get off this about politics. Uh, Nikki Haley from South Carolina is running for president. Um, one of her ideas is calling for competency tests for politicians older than 75. On the surface, that sounds smart. I can't see how we would ever agree to what would be a uniform standard for competency. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, I think that is the kind of thing that you say that is going to score you political points when Joe Biden is the president and when Mitch McConnell looks like he's having a stroke on live television. But from a practical perspective, what's going to be on the test? Who gets to write the test? Who's doing the evaluation? You know, is it just multiple choice or is it something that requires like, you know, some level of expertise to analyze and then who's the expert that gets to analyze it? And uh, I mean, I mean, to me, we, 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 we just don't need that. What you need is you just need political parties that will actually just say you're too old. We're not going to let you run. And they're, they're just, but right now, everything is treated as an emergency. And so everybody just wants to win now. And so if the old guy or the guy who just had a stroke can, is the best path to victory, well, just vote for the old guy or the, or the guy who had the stroke and then we'll just fix it later. That seems to be the attitude. For sure. Yeah, it's just win. Damon, mm-hmm. Al Davis. Um, You're pretty good about these kind of things. You and I have talked about this before. I've noticed a difference with uh, in one generation between my thoughts on this when I was this age and my kids' thoughts on it as they are. I've got one that's finished with college, one that's halfway through college. Um. Obviously, it's a very small sample size. <laughs> I see their friends and such. And some date to some degree. Most really don't. I don't. Most of them are not in like serious relationships coming out of college. 
which is fine. I'm not criticizing, by the way, before anybody thinks I'm, I'm not. It's all good. But there's some numbers that are out. Uh, over the last 50 years, the marriage rate in the U.S. has dropped by nearly 60%. Uh, Americans are increasingly, I'm reading from Axios, in case you're wondering where I'm reading from, Americans are increasingly foregoing or delaying marriage, a dramatic shift from societal norms a generation ago. Um, even though taxes and some other legal structures still give an advantage to married couples, the formal benefits of marriage are diminishing, said Andrew Sherlin, a soci sociologist at Johns Hopkins. Societal pressure to marry has eroded dramatically. Um, and then along those lines, obviously, <clears throat> you don't have to be married to produce children, but it's typically a societal thing. Uh, the population of the U.S. in 2022 grew by just 0.4%, which is better than it was in 2021, but still worse than every other year of the past 100 years. What do you make of those two things? I think part of it's economic and part of it's cultural. So when we think about the economics, one of the things here is that more people go to college than previous uh, generations, especially like the current college students, you know, there, there's a much greater percentage of their population that's going to college than say like their grandparents or their great grandparents. And college has gotten considerably more expensive. So it's not just that they're doing that, but that the, it, it's, it's more expensive. Also, I think part of this that doesn't get enough attention is in economics, there's this thing called uh, the Tobin effect. And the, the Tobin effect essentially says that when you have uh, higher rates of inflation, what people tend to do is they tend to invest in more capital. So that could be human capital, physical capital, physical capital. You know, if you're a business, this is like you build a new factory, you buy a bunch of machines, you, computers, that sort of thing. Uh, if you're a human being, you invest in human capital. So, you know, you invest in your health, you invest in knowledge, all these kinds of things. And so, you know, over the last 40 to 50 years, we, we've had, you know, consistent positive rates of inflation. And we had that coming out of a world where on average, the inflation rate was close to zero. And so naturally, you would expect that people are going to invest more in human and physical capital. So people are going to invest in college education, they're going to invest more in their health. They're going to invest more, uh, in housing. Um, like, you know, they're, they're after tangible things that are going to maintain their value over time. And if you look at relative prices, if you adjust prices for inflation, the, the prices of all the like consumer goods, like televisions and all these other sorts of things, they're, they're all dramatically declining. But if you look at the prices of these capital goods like healthcare, uh, education, housing, those prices are going up faster than the rate of inflation. Now, in part, you know, inflation is just an average of all of these prices. So something's got to be rising more than average and something's got to be rising less than average. But you see that these capital good prices are what's rising faster. And so part of what I'm saying here is it's just become a lot more expensive to be young. Housing's more expensive, healthcare is more expensive, 
Uh, college is more expensive. And among a certain set of the population, like if you're somebody who, you know, your, your life goal is you want to get a career and you want to live in the big city, like you want to live in New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. Monroe. Yeah, you want exactly. You want to live in those big, big cities. It's really expensive to live there. Yes. And if you're coming out of college with a lot of student loan debt, you have to pay off this debt. You've got to find a place to live, and you've got to try to to make it in the big city. And it's gonna be it's gonna be harder for you to do that economically. So, I think. And so again, I think there's a there's also a sort of class divide here. Because if you're someone who just goes to your state university and you stay relatively close to home, you're not going to have the same degree of costs as other people. And so there's going to be a class divide here where the people who are going to elite universities and trying to move to big cities, they're going to be the ones that are most likely to you know, face these steep costs. Whereas the people who are staying closer to home, uh, not racking up a bunch of student loan debt, that sort of thing, they're going to have it a little bit easier. And so you're going to get a little class divide there. But in general, things are more expensive. And so if things are more expensive, it's just going to be harder for you to to do this. But I also think that there's a cultural aspect. And the cultural aspect is that we have completely emphasized in our society that your career is the biggest thing that matters. So go to college, get a job, start your career, make some money, then meet somebody, then get married, then have children. And the problem is, is that the longer you wait, the harder it is to find someone, the shorter the window that you can have children. And so naturally, if part of the culture is waiting longer, then it's going to be much harder to match. It's going to be much harder to, uh, it's going to be much harder to have a big family. And also if you've already started your career, you might not want to have a big family. Even if that's something that you wanted to have when you were younger, you might not want it now because there are all these sacrifices. And I think this is something that we as a society don't talk about very much at all. For sure. Um, no, we don't at all. Because it's taboo to talk about it almost. An academic that I know made a comment a few months ago to me about his wife's generous maternity leave. And he said something like, well, you know, we're the lucky ones because my wife has all this maternity leave. And so, you know, unlike a lot of other people, she gets to spend a lot of time with our child after, you know, the baby is born. And so we're just really lucky. And I and I, I know him very well, and so I can say something like this to him. But what I said was, I said, you know, my grandma spent my uh, my mom and her siblings' entire uh, childhood with them, and my other grandma spent, uh, her, her, you know, my my dad and his brother's entire childhood uh, with them. She never uh, she never had to be away from them for work, and and I said this partially because the, the the person I was having a conversation with is an economist, so I know that he would get what I'm saying. And what I'm saying is, is that there are trade-offs that we make in life. So I'm not saying that what my grandmother's did is better than what his wife is doing. 
But what I'm saying is, is that we make choices. And so, you know, when you make, if you think that being um, home with your child is really, really valuable, but you still go to work, there's a revealed preference there. It says that, yeah, it is really valuable for me to spend time with my child, but not valuable enough to, to not go to work. Now, that gets back into the economic thing. So maybe you can't do that right. because it's gotten more expensive. And so maybe it's just impossible for you to do that. And and that's a perfectly legitimate thing. But I mean, what? But I think part of the reason that we don't talk about this is that I could never say that to a person that I don't know. If I would have said that, I would have been accused of having like, you know, nefarious motives or saying that women belong in the kitchen or something like that. Um, you know, I was able to say that because that person is my friend and because he knew that I, what the joke that I was making. But we have to have some of these conversations because as he, I mean, as humans, fundamentally, this gets into just like, why are we here? And part of the reason that why, why you're here and part of the re, and part of the thing that makes life enjoyable is you find someone that you love and you have children with them and you raise those children and those children grow up and they find somebody that they love and they have children and you get to enjoy all of this. And that's one of the biggest joys in life. And so if we think about the cultural aspect of this, if you're just saying like, Hey, I got to, you know, I got, I got to have my career. And then if I, you know, if I make it and I find somebody, then I'll have children. It just needs to be clear that like you're making, you're making a choice and you're, and you're demonstrating what, what value that you, that you place on these things, but we don't ever have these sorts of conversations. And, and I think, honestly, I think that there are some, um, some, sort of like old school feminists who got this, which were where they were basically like, look, women, women should go to work just like men. But their thing was, is like, well, but if they're going to society is going to have to dramatically change the way that it operates because those women are making a sacrifice by going to work. And there was a recognition of that sacrifice that they were making and that if you wanted them to be able to go to work, well, you know, th- there was going to be have to be somebody to watch your children and you would want to trust the person who's going to watch your children and all this other sort of stuff. But I, but I also think this is the reason why there's some class divide here as well, is that the people who are going to even the people who are going to college and they're not moving, you know, they're not going very far to go to college. They're not accumulating a bunch of debt. They're not living far away from home. They have mom and dad. And they have their spouse's mom and dad potentially nearby who can help them. Mm-hmm. And that gives them an advantage that people who are just off on their own in the big city that they don't have. But we don't ever talk about these things. We don't ever talk about what this means for public policy. We don't ever talk about what this means for um, – we, we don't ever talk about you know what this means for the culture. We don't talk about what this means for the future of society. We don't ever have hard conversations about this because it's politically incorrect to like, you know, I mean the joke I made to my friend, it's a very politically incorrect joke that I made. Like you can't just say that, you know, to anybody and have them get that, you know, you're, you're joking or trying to provoke conversation. No, a lot of people would get mad at you. If you were to say that they would, they would say, what are you trying to say? It's, it's like, uh, I saw there was a interview and I can't remember the actress's name. I'm not a great pop culture person. You'll learn that. Um, not that you care, but there will be people out there that, I don't keep up with pop culture well at all, but they're making a new Snow White. And in this Snow White, she's not going to be, quote, saved 
end quote, by Prince Charming. She's going to be more career-oriented. <laughs> Snow White is. And I thought, all right, who's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs marketed to? Little people, children, not dwarfs. I mean, <laughs> dwarfs would find it interesting as well. Yeah. But young people, right? I mean, you and I aren't, hey, I'm going to go see Snow White, honey. No, I mean, you know, you take the kids to see Snow White. So when the message is not, when the message goes in, in, in just one generation's time from, hey, um, this story about Snow White and Seven Dwarfs and Prince Charming and all that stuff. And I guess I'm probably confusing some of my storylines because, again, pop culture. But to, hey, Snow White doesn't need anybody. Okay, Snow White's good. She just needs to get focused on her career. That feels like that's an intentional message that's being delivered. No, this is something where I'll have a controversial opinion. I think that stuff like this destroys the culture. If you want to tell that story, tell that story. But why does the, why does the story need to be Snow White? What you're doing is, is you're saying, I want to take a popular story that a lot of people are going to take their kids to see so that I get an audience that I might not get if I told this story some other way. You're, you're rewriting a story that already exists uh, and you're writing it for a particular purpose. I don't have a problem with the story that you want to tell. I have a daughter, okay? I want my daughter to make her own choices. If she grows up and she wants to be a stay-at-home mom, then more power to her. If she grows up and she wants to be the president of the United States, more power to her. Sure. The So... The idea, though, is that we 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 overcorrect on all of this stuff, and and not just that, but that there's it seems like there's deliberate attempts in the culture to undermine particular messages through stories that everybody already knows. Because if I want to tell a story that, um, if I want to tell a new story, and the new story is uh, you know this great story about female empowerment or something like that. Maybe it won't be popular. Maybe it won't catch on. And then how many people actually get to see this story of female empowerment that I just, you know, put together. But if I call it Snow White, I got a huge audience just built in. And so I, I just don't, uh, to me, I, I just don't see why that has to be the case. You should. Because it's intentional destruction of, of culture. It's not, it's not subtle. It's intentional. It's, 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 hey, we don't want. Like in Cinderella's case, right? I'm trying to get all my Disney <laughs> things straight. Yeah. These always felt like pretty harmless things to me, like growing up, right? These were just stories. They were fairy tales. Cinderella and the glass slipper and the thing running out to midnight. and Prince, I guess it was Prince Charming came and took her away and took her away from this world of, of servitude into a world of love and happiness and, and, and riches and, and such, right? And I guess the... The, the feminist would shoot back and say, oh, you're saying that Cinderella couldn't have gotten there without Prince Charming? No, but in the story, Prince Charming fell in love with Cinderella. And he met her at the ball and he went all over town, all over the village with the glass slipper looking to see whose foot it fit. Right? I mean, that, that was the story. So it's okay for that to be the story. That doesn't mean that the only way to happiness for a female is you have to go to the ball and break your glass slipper. For, I mean, why do we have to be so literal with everything? Why can't, why can't some things just be, hey, but why can't it be happily ever after that 
Prince Charming and Cinderella that he found the he found the one who whose foot hit fit the slipper and off they went to to be presumably happy for 50 years. Yeah, I think that the big distinction that I'm that I would like to make here is if you don't like the message then don't take your daughter to see Snow White or your son to see Snow White. Don't take your kids to see Snow White or don't take your kids to see Cinderella if you don't like the message of the story. Why are we rewriting the message? Because you're taking a story that already exists and then you're just making it something different, but you're calling it something the same. What you're deliberately trying to do in that case is you're you're literally trying to destroy the original story. I mean, there's no other explanation for that because you could tell another story. Sure. uh, You know, you could tell a different story about some completely different person. Go into a bookstore. There's tons of books. (laughs) Right. And so... It just seems like a deliberate attempt to just say, you know, um, no, we it, it seems more like a deliberate attempt to just say we don't like this story. So we're going to do it this way. So we're going to try to eradicate right. and, and we're going to make a statement by doing it a different way. And it to me, it's just it, it doesn't it doesn't make much sense. It's not particularly. You know, I guess that there's an audience for this. I guess that there are people who saw like those comments and were like, "Oh, great! There's now going to be like a real good Snow White movie or something like that." I, but to me, it, it just seems like you're you're completely undermining things that are a popular part of Western culture, and you're doing so just because you think that it has. Uh, a sort of bad message, but you can counter that message in other ways. You don't have to completely rewrite the the story. And it just seems over the top and purposeful. Speaking of uh, bookstores, Josh, I got a, a message from a friend. Um, it looks like this was Instagram. Uh, Square Books here in Oxford is um, they Instagrammed. I started to say tweeted, but it's not tweeted. Uh, the Instagrammed message that the 49th annual Faulkner and Yakna Fatah, I can't pronounce that, con- conference is underway. This year's theme, would you like to guess? No, tell me. This year's theme is queer Faulkner. This year's conference will explore the diverse expressions, meanings, and functions of non normative sexuality, gender, desire, and affiliation in William Faulkner's life and work tapping into the disciplinary ferment of queer and trans studies scholarships, scholarship and the new paradigms and reading strategies it has established. I mean, sign me up. I, I can't wait. That's going to be all. I, I'm sorry, but I thought Faulkner was straight. I, I mean, I, d- d- does anyone tell William? Do we need to run to the... I mean, his gravesite is not far from here. I mean, what am I missing? That 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 feels like a reach. Whenever they have the annual Faulkner conference, I always kind of look at it and I think it's amazing how many years you can have a conference about one author and still get you know subject matter. <laughs> and so I guess they finally run out of ideas. I, guess, I, I mean, mean what's that, the next communist Faulkner? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what is the next thing? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. That's again, we're kind of doing this thing where we're. I'm just guessing he wouldn't have approved. He would have said, well, that's not really what I was getting at in anything. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where people are trying to push their their field in an academia um, 
like they want to study particular issues, but maybe, you know, people think that those issues are not things that show up in classic works. There are things that are more modern and maybe people don't want to study the modern stuff or maybe people think that or maybe people question whether the modern stuff is any good because it hasn't stood the test of time. And so the natural thing for people to do is just to find something good, old and long lasting and say, hey, that stuff's actually here, too. So we can just look at it in this context. Anything else on your mind today? Uh, no, I think the I, I, I think that. Um, I think that the stuff about I, I mean, the, the, the really thing that I that I kind of am hopeful for is I'm, I'm just hopeful that we can get past a, a lot of this. Um, a lot of this nonsense. There's so much sort of like, you know, there's just so much doom and gloom. There's so much like this, you know, everything is arbitrary or nothing matters or there, there's all of this going on and it just comes up over and over and over again in, in every, in every sort of political topic. And I think it actually touches on every single thing that we've talked about. You think about, you know, uh, Joe Biden and you think about Mitch McConnell and Diane Feinstein and John Fetterman and, you know, this Snow White story and all this stuff. It's just kind of like you look at all this stuff and it just makes you, you know, you can't help but be confirmed in your nihilism, right? That everything's made up and nothing matters. Why doesn't anybody fix any of this stuff? I think it's very easy for people to end up in that place. And, and, yet, and yet, like in my life, the things that matter, and I'm 53, the things that matter in my life right now, and I, I mean, my career matters to me. It's important. I take it seriously. I'm always looking for ways to create revenue streams, looking for ways that I can expand this podcast network. I, I've had two of those conversations this week alone. It's just Wednesday as we take this. Yet, I'll tell you an interesting conversation, and I won't, I won't name the person because the person didn't mean it in a negative way. He really didn't. He meant it as a compliment to me. But the way that he said it was interesting. I was in Nashville for SEC Media Days. Um, I had gone on Saturday because my daughter's moving in into Nashville, and Laura and I were helping with some stuff at her house. There were some problems with her house that she's renting. And anyway, I moved to the site of the event on Monday. It started Monday at noon. SEC did a fantastic job, by the way, anybody listening. Uh, they did a as good a job as they've ever done with SEC Media Days. It's a day too long, but look, it's a TV made-for-TV event. It gets lots of coverage. Cool, good for them. Incredibly well done at the uh, Grand Hyatt in Nashville. Well, my son Carson flew to Nashville on Wednesday morning. Um, he flew on Wednesday because there's a there's a camp starting at um, Lipscomb on Friday and on Thursday because that was Ole Miss's day. I was like, hey, I can't do this Thursday. I can't get him Thursday. So either fly him early Friday or we're going to have to do it on Wednesday. And he was ready to get out of town and get out and, you know, go to Nashville and stay in a big hotel and all that stuff. And so uh, he flew to Nashville on Wednesday morning. I left for just a couple hours, drove over to the airport, got him, brought him back to the hotel. Um, and I did my work. I mean, I literally, it made me miss one of the 14 schools that went through. I did, I did not, was not there for any of Arkansas's. Was it the only one that I missed? And uh, anyway, some point on Wednesday or Thursday, I ran into a media friend 
who was like, man, I can't wait to get out of here. Are you, are you leaving Thursday after Kiffin? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm staying because Carson goes to a camp at Lipscomb on, on Friday and he goes there till Saturday. And then I'm going to pick him up there on Saturday and we're going to drive to Birmingham so he can go to the UAB camp on Sunday because both of them are having elite ID camps for soccer for high school boys. And he said, whew, your dad of the year, you know, bless you or whatever. And I was like, no, I mean, this is more fun and rewarding for me than it is for him. I get time with him. I get I get time with him. I'm the one that gets his kind of undivided attention for a few days, right? I get to take him to dinner. We're going to walk down to dinner in Nashville. We're going to walk around. We walked over the bridge over there to the football stadium. Um, you know, we walked around, we pointed things out. We went on Broadway and, um, you know, we went to dinner at a place. Uh, there's a, a Mexican place that we went to in Cincinnati. It's a chain, kind of an upscale-ish chain called Bakersfield. And Carson loves it. Tacos are phenomenal. and He loved it in Cincinnati. And there's one in Nashville and he wanted to go. So we went and we watched the uh, Chelsea-Rexham game that Wednesday night. It was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but it was on TV. So we, 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 we watched that game. Um, we had a good time. You know, got time in the car. Um, he got to see where his sister's going to be living. And, um, you know, he got to go to the camp at, at, uh, at Lipscomb. I got to go watch some of the games Friday night because they did some 11 v 11 after they did all the drills and stuff. And then we drove to Birmingham and I got to watch some of them at, at UAB and then we drove back. And for me, that was awesome. That was the highlight of my trip having him, you know, in that time with him because he's 16, you've got a child that age. I know how this works because I've seen it with my girls. They go to 18 and then they move on and they go to college. And when they go to college, there's, they, it's just something changes, not in the relationship, but in the time and time's valuable. And it's the most rewarding thing for me. And I, I, I didn't say all that. I started to, I started to say, no, man. I mean, this is, this is what makes this, this is what I, Otherwise, I would have been like, I'm ready to go home because I want to go see my family. But I'm as excited to still be there because I was, I had, does that make sense? I had him. That was the rewarding part. And so the rewarding part, the, far more rewarding than any of the coverage that I did. And I enjoyed the coverage. I enjoyed media days. I mean, again, it was incredibly well done. The access was great. It was great. I got to uh, write about a lot of other schools. I got time with Kiffin in, in a local media setting where we got to get some stuff and um you know I, I did some appearances with some other people I networked that did a lot of extra podcasts and stuff it was good there was a lot of career good for me but the great part was my time with Carson and sometimes I, I don't know maybe maybe people like me need to say that out loud more which is you know I, I, I see these young people and it's career 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 and I get it I get it but man I mean I worry that you look up at 40 and you've busted your ass and you've ascended to associate vice president of whatever and you're going home to a TV dinner at night and I kind of wonder like what's that when does the light go off that oh wow I did all this and I didn't I didn't set up the part of my life that would probably end up being the most rewarding and I know that people go, oh, so you're saying that you can't have a rewarding life unless you have children. Well, I'm not saying that. But I wonder. 
if you can truly have a rewarding life, if all you do, if it's solely your career, if it, if, if there is ever a moment that you wake up and go, Hey, the, the people that lo- the people that told me this, the people that enforced this message into my brain, they didn't tell me the whole story. Maybe a better way to say what I said is that I think that we just have a crisis of meaning. Like people, it's hard to figure out what people think that the meaning of all of this really is. When people ask me like about having children, they'll say, you know, like what was the biggest surprise about having children? And what I always say to people is, as I always say, the, the the biggest surprise when you have children is that you look at having a child and you think, okay, that's going to be a ton of work. There's going to be so much time, so much money, so much energy, so much effort that's going to go into that. And then you have kids and it's way more time, way more money, yeah. way more energy, <laughs> way so, more effort so than, much. than you could ever imagine. <laughs> so much. Yeah. <laughs> but despite the fact that it's way more costly than you could ever imagine, it's also way more satisfying than you could ever imagine. Yeah. You don't understand how satisfying it is until you experience it. And there's nothing you can do to get people to understand that feeling or what it's like, you know, uh, when you, when you have children. And I, and I think about this all the time because I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. Whenever I go do something even if it's something like really exciting or important professionally and I go and I, you know, I've got to leave town and maybe it's like a prestigious conference or maybe I'm going to meet with important people or whatever it is. And I get really excited about it. And I have to say that like the first or the second night that I'm there, I'm just thinking about when I can go home because, (laughs) (laughs) because like you just, you, you want to be with your family. And I, and I think that this is something that, uh, people need to talk about and people need to emphasize because there's so much emphasis on no you've got to get you've got to get you know you just organize your life get through college get you know find someone to marry then if you want to have children you know have some children but like but that you have to do it in that specific order and it's like no just do it in whatever order that it happens you know like you you don't have to you don't have to do it in order in fact doing it in order might be a hindrance to that to, yeah. to you fulfilling those goals in in the first place for sure and so you, a, a lot of what's, and, and I think, you know, a lot of what's going on is all these things that we talked about are all interrelated is that there, there's just a lack of meaning and people are trying to find meaning in things where they shouldn't find meaning. If you're trying to find meaning in the political process, if you're trying to find meaning in, you know, these huge insurmountable things that we see facing us as a society and you're trying to find meaning in supporting somebody who you think is going to save that or something like that. That's never going to give you the meaning that you're looking for. It might give you satisfaction. It's not going to give you meaning. And I think that people really have to, um, we have to do a better job of communicating this and talking to people about it, that the, that the things that provide us meaning are the things that have always provided humans with meaning. Yes. And that, and that that's not going to change. And that, you know, we might be wealthier than our grandparents. We might, um, you know, uh, we, we might have a better life. We might have an easier life. But the same thing that gave them meaning gives gives us meaning. And, and and it's that, you know, and and for me, a lot of that is, you know, the, the time that I get to spend with my family. And I think about that stuff all the time because I 
especially with my boys, like they play sports. I run them all over, you know, all over the place. We live in Mississippi. So also when you run all over the place, that doesn't mean like you run all over town. That means you run all over Mississippi. Right. <laughs> right. right. So like this, you know, so it's incredibly time consuming. But, you know, when you st- when you stop and think about it, it's like, well, what else would I be doing? Like what, what else would I be doing? Like what else would provide me with this much, um, happiness. you know, yeah, the happiness, exactly. Fulfillment. Yeah. We'll finish with this. There's an excerpt. Hey, spoiler alert. Um, I'm watching The Quarterback. on. Uh, it's, I think it's just called Quarterback. It's Peyton Manning Productions, Omaha Productions. It's on Netflix. It's been really well done. They have followed uh, <clears throat> Marcus Mariota, uh, Kirk Cousins, and Patrick Mahomes around for last season. Really well done. And... On episode seven, again, spoiler alert, but these things happened on NFL fields. So, okay, <laughs> the season's done. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> the Minnesota Vikings, quarterbacked by Kirk Cousins, trailed the Indianapolis Colts 33 to nothing at halftime in a game in Minnesota late last season. It's a game that if the Vikings won, they would clinch the NFC North. The Vikings came back and won that game in overtime. Won the North. Obviously, biggest comeback in NFL history. And Kirk Cousins is in the locker room after the game. Still completely dressed, pads, everything. Everything but his helmet. And he looks across the locker room, and one of his teammates had brought his son into the locker room. And Kirk Cousins thought, I'm going to go get Cooper, his son. Who, four, five, somewhere in there. And so he goes back out onto the field, finds his wife, and says, bring Cooper to the family area. I'll get him. And she's all excited because she's like, this is going to be such a great memory for my son. And he goes and gets him and carries him into the the locker room. First, he stops and gets him a snack, gets him some food that they laid out or whatever. And he puts him in a chair in his locker room while he takes off his stuff and changes and goes to his press conference availability and takes his son into the press conference. And he says, one of the reasons I want to keep playing again, this is a quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings. Okay. Mm-hmm. You don't get to that spot without being pretty serious about your football. You got, you got to really love it. You got to really study. You got to really care. You got to put in a lot of work. You got to take care of your body. You got to, you, you're not just sitting around playing with kids every day. Nope. Nope. You're putting in a lot of work to be a starting quarterback in the national football league. Period. The end. No exceptions. But he said, one of the reasons I want to keep playing is I want them to, I want them to A, get to enjoy stuff like this, and I want them to remember me playing. Here's that, that's, the, that's what's on his mind on a day where he just led the biggest comeback in NFL history. Won a division. Clinched a playoff berth. Signs of success in his field because not every quarterback ever makes the playoffs. Right. In fact, most quarterbacks don't make the playoffs. It's hard. It's hard to win. Winning is hard at the NFL level. That position is hard. Keeping that position and being somewhere near the top of your field is hard. Even Patrick Mahomes, who's just gifted by the gods, works his ass off, and you see it in this story. But his thought was about about his kid, about his family, because that's where he ultimately, even Kirk Cousins, ultimately that's where he gets his meaning. And I thought it was, I thought it was so cool. Like I was watching it 
going, I don't cheer for the Vikings. And I'm catching myself cheering for the Vikings. I like this guy. You know, I want I want him to do well because I think he sort of gets it. And that was cool. And, you know, I don't know whether his little boy will remember that moment in the Vikings locker room or not. Probably so young that he'll vaguely remember it. But what he will remember will be special to him. That will be a meaning. That will be something that that he'll keep for the rest of his life long after his dad's not playing in the NFL anymore. Yeah, I think that this is a really important point because we get so focused on what we're going to, what we can achieve professionally. And, you know, there, there are times in your career where you're trying to get the best job that you can. You're trying to get that promotion. You're trying to get, you know, whatever it is that, that you want. Um, but I've been pretty like successful in my career. And I can say that like, if I did not have my family, like it, it that none of that would really make me that happy. Like, it, I mean, I, I guess I'd be proud of myself. So I'd have some level sure. of happiness, sure, but not the level of happiness that you have from, you know, um, that, that you get from, from your family, from your kids, like that watching your kids grow up is a thing that you cannot, um, you know, you, you can't put into words like how enjoyable it is and how fun it is um, because you just get to watch these little, uh, you know, these little humans grow up and it's kind of, uh, it's kind of amazing. And there are just these stages in their lives where you just all of a sudden see them differently, right? They change and you notice that like, oh, you know, they're moving from this phase to this phase and, and, and you notice it and, and, frankly it's just cool because like your kids are fun to be around like i don't like if i mean i, yeah. I, I don't know mine are i don't yeah. you know they're, they're fun to be around so why you know um you I mean, we've, hit the, we've hit the stage where they you know laugh at me you know yeah. and i like that I, I i like i like getting laughed at because the truth is that means they love me you know what i mean i mean that they they're not making fun they're just amused because i'm 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 older now you know and in the same way that i probably laughed at my parents when they did stuff when i was 20 years old it's like what are you doing you know you're crazy and but you know i mean they get me that's one of the things one of the things i love is that my there are things that happen father's day gift that that show me that they get me not only that they appreciate me they like me and, and that's god that's a reward that my career's never given me that no no journalism award or anything is ever no columnist of the year or something like that has ever given me that satisfaction. I mean, honestly, not not even a little bit. I mean, you know, I mean, it. you see it all the time, like going back to football for a minute. So many times at the Super Bowl, the team that wins, the guys are carrying their kids around. I mean, it's – even in that big moment, where it's the penultimate moment of your professional football career, winning the Super Bowl, you're still kind of thinking about, Hey, I'm so glad my family's here. They all bring their families there. You know, it's not, hey, man, I got a bit, no distractions. I got to get locked in on this. You know, we got the Packers. This is the biggest game of my life. Yeah, it is the biggest game of your life. But if you lose, you're going to want your family there. And if you win, you're going to want your family there. You know, and it's, I don't know. I, we're, I think we've made the point. But it's, sometimes I see this about the, uh, I see this about marriage going down and, not having children and the number of children and waiting longer to have children and stuff. And I think 
I wonder, like I said, I wonder when those people were older, they look back and go, what was I doing? I was following this messaging that's been created that, you know, when you and I were that age, that wasn't the message. That wasn't the message. And it's a message now. And, and when you're young, you're very susceptible to messages. And I sometimes wonder about the intentionality of it. What is the motive? That kind of thing. Because I think there, I think there is one, even if it's not intentional. I kind of think it sort of is. I'm not, I'm not expressing that anywhere near as well as you can because I'm not as smart as you. But I don't think it's a pure coincidence. I think that's maybe my biggest frustration is that, you know, from the beginning of, you know, humans, people have been wrestling with the question, like, why are we here? What's the point? Like, where do we get meaning? Where do we find meaning? And I just feel like in a lot of ways that's been stripped out of everything that we talk about and, and, popular culture and and those kinds of things a lot of that just the thought of you know where do you find meaning what's important to you how do you um you know how do you figure that sort of a thing out all those questions are really important to ask and to and to wrestle with and the more that we kind of give people practical advice about maybe what would be best for them you know in theory we're stripping away that meaning um, just by providing them this sort of step-by-step guide. And you're not, you're never going to get meaning from a step-by-step guide. Agreed. Hey, uh, I'll, I'll tease with this. We didn't get to this. We intended to get to this. I sent this to you today. Um, so we'll try to remember this in a couple of weeks because this is a scary thing. Speaking of scary things. Um, it's Dr. Joseph Mer- Merkula. He's an osteopathic physician, best-selling author, founder of the number one natural health site, Mercola.com, M-E-R-C-O-L-A, based out of Cape Coral, Florida, which I think is a suburb of Miami. He uh, tweets today on July the 26th, Chase Bank has shut down our business bank accounts along with the accounts of my CEO and CFO as well as their family members, including spouse and child. They've refused to provide any reason for doing so. The oldest account has been active for 18 years. Um, Merkula, this probably will not surprise you, was very critical of um, the pandemic response. He was very critical of the rollout of the uh, vaccines, and he has been one that has uh, been critical of the lack of transparency on the part of Big Pharma as it pertains to some of the potential issues with uh, the COVID vaccine. I think you'll agree with what I'm about to say. The concern that I have with this tweet is not that people are upset at Pfizer or, or wherever about this guy criticizing the vaccine. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm not a medical person. I don't, I've got thoughts, but I don't know. That being said, if his opinions lead to his bank account being shut down. We are heading in a scary direction that is, you might like it when it's your side is the one doing the shutting down, but typically these things are sort of like a tennis match. The ball's going to go in the other court at some point, and you're not going to like it then. 
This should be something that unites us against, hey, this is not good. We don't need to be going after our philosophical adversaries in this sort of way. We should be able to have a conversation and a debate, and you might be pro-vax, and I might be anti-vax or vice versa, and we might never come to an agreement on it. But we can't go after people's bank accounts. We can't create a social score system. That is a dangerous place. It is. There's nothing good that comes out of that. And this is a step in that direction if it's allowed. This is one of the most important things I think that's going on that, that people need to pay attention to. And there have been people who have been thinking about this for a long time. When you start to get rid of cash and everybody's using uh, banks and every transaction is electronic, uh, there are all sorts of potential problems uh, with that, both in terms of privacy, in terms of how you can use your money in terms of whether you can get an account, all these other sorts of things. And this is why, um, you know, I mean, we've talked a little bit before about Bitcoin that, you know, most people think of that now as like this, this thing that, you know, uh, went from, you know, pennies to like worth, you know, $30,000 or something. But what that really came out of is this entire movement that was looking to figure out how we could create an electronic version of cash so that you can actually have censorship-resistant money. And people have not thought even remotely enough about how important censorship-resistant money is for the world. We'll get to it in two weeks. I want to dive into it. All right. Uh, that does it. Thanks, for everybody, for uh, listening. We really appreciate it. We had great response to uh, episode one. I expect we'll have similar to episode two. Please feel free to uh, give us some feedback. You can follow uh, Josh on Twitter at rebeleconprof. You get that right? R-E-B-E-L-E-C-O-N-P-R-O-F. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Neil McCready. I don't have a cool name, just <laughs> Neil McCready. Um, anyway, we'll be back in two weeks with another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. Until then, take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.